0: Welcome to the In Vino Fabulum podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Patrice. We're your co-hosts with the most for the In Vino Fabulum. That means in wine story.
1: We think there are a number of tales to be shared about women and wine. This is a space to offer a narrative and chat about both. Welcome to
0: today's episode
1: Of Invino Fabulam. We're excited to chat with Brooke Welch to talk about
0: her role as a STEAM coordinator for the Dr. Elmer S. Bagnell Elementary School, a PK to six co-ed public school in Groveland, Massachusetts, where she manages the school's makerspace and maker education.
1: So Bagnell converted its school steam room into a makerspace in 2017. And prior to running the Makerspace, Brooke taught middle school art for eight years and second grade for two years in Newberry, Massachusetts. In addition to running open hours for student passion projects in the Makerspace, Brooke collaborates with faculty to incorporate making into the academic curriculum. These projects allow them to put their newly acquired academic skills to work. Students have opportunities to learn innovation and collaboration while tackling real world problems. You can follow Brooke and her class on Twitter at ESB Steam Coord. So, Brooke, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, beyond the bio that I shared, uh, is there anything that you would like to tell us about yourself and the work that you do?
2: Um, I am very passionate about the work that I do, and I think that's why it has really kind of gone off the ground, uh, running. Um, but I uh, I grew up on an organic dairy farm in upstate New York. And I think that's really where my uh, drive has come from. Um, I now have moved down to the Boston area, and it's completely different than upstate New York, um, growing up on a farm. Um, I never thought that I would you know, be an arm's reach away from my neighbor when I grew up in an area where my nearest neighbor was five miles down the road. <laughs> So I think my my entire mentality has been to kind of create my childhood in the public uh, public education. Um, I was always outside running around and trying to figure out how things were working. And my parents always gave us like wood and tools and we would just build. And I think that's a very important thing that kids aren't getting these days.
0: Yeah. And thinking about your background in k12 or k6 um you were in art so can you talk a little bit about what was your medium and what brought you into that in art education because i used to work in that area as k12 got you into art
2: so when i decided what i wanted to do uh for my undergrad my art teacher in high school really inspired me to become an art teacher so i went down that road and um, I landed a job at Triton, which is in uh, Byfield, Massachusetts, as a seventh and eighth grade art teacher. Um, When I got there, they just had general art, so it was seventh grade art, eighth grade art, Um, and after my first year, I decided that the students really needed more voice and choice within their art, Um, so when I started... uh, At Triton, as the middle school art teacher, we only had just general art for seventh and eighth grade. And what I did is created options for students to take their art quarterly. So they gave the students more power uh, over their courses that they were taking. So they had between drawing, painting, ceramics, and digital media um, as their four quarterly choices. Um, And by doing that, I saw... Much more student-driven work instead of just being put in a class. They really loved what they were doing because they had the choice, and you know, it gave them their own uh, their own power for their education. And we just saw such a huge increase within our arts department, even following through to the high school, um, that it was just very important.
0: Yeah, that self-directed, going. autonomous learning. I think that's great. So they got to pick and choose. Do they have to do all four kind of mediums, like media drawing, all that, or do they get to choose really their own path for creating?
2: They really got to choose their own path. So um, the reason why we had those four disciplines was because the high school department um, kind of surround, you know, was surrounded by uh, kind of specialized in the drawing art, uh, drawing, ceramics, painting, and um, digital media. So it was a a nice kind of stepping stone for the students who really weren't sure what they wanted to do. And I really wanted students to understand that just because you're really not good at at drawing does not mean you're not good at art. You know, so or or just because, you know, you can build things with with your hands doesn't, you know, it's really important for students to understand that they're really good at at things if they try hard. Um, And I think that was my my whole drive between the voice and choice.
1: I'm interested, you know, because you talked a little bit about the, you know, importance to, to create experiences so students can understand that they can be good at anything, which of course leads into mathematics and STEM and building up their efficacy. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your journey from being an art teacher to what you're doing now.
2: Sure. Yeah. So I got my master's degree in STEM education at Wheelock College. Um and that was kind of the huge stepping stone for me between being an art teacher and being the STEAM coordinator. Um and then so after I had gotten my master's degree in STEM education and taught two years in um an elementary school, I was very grateful to find a STEAM coordinator position, which pretty much was where I was working up to going. And I am just so in love with the position that I have. Um Can I put a
0: pause on that for our listeners? Because we're using a lot of acronyms and alphabet soup. So I'm not saying that people don't know this, but STEM versus STEAM. Do you want to explain that a little bit?
2: Sure. Uh, So STEM is science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, And those are the core principles that we as a nation have decided that – students need to know and need to learn in order to succeed when they're in their adulthood. Now, where there's going to be more jobs in the STEM field than there are um, at any other jobs, which is like trade, you know, any trade and and sciences, technology, Um, all of those are just going to uh, just increase over the next couple of years. Um, So it's really important for students to start to um, understand those principles and those concepts at a young age so that they're able to under, so they're able to um, become engineers and become independent thinkers when they're older.
0: And what's um, unique so, about your role you have an a in it to make it steam so that's the arts.
2: Yeah, yeah. so steam um, steam is including the arts and what was happening when stem first started was we realized it was very rigid and it was very um, linear. So when we were when we were teaching STEM, um, we were we were forgetting that the arts and the creative people were being left out, and it it's it, so what what happens is. When you're in a a corporation or you have a group of people and you're all trying to solve a problem as an engineer and you don't have creative thinkers, you're not going to have a creative out-of-the-box solution. And that's what we really need more of. Um, You know, we really need more of, we really need more creative thinkers. And that's where the arts comes in. And that's why it's so important for STEAM um, versus STEM. You know, I think every school looks at it a little bit differently um so yeah.
0: thanks and sorry for interrupting you i just don't want us to go on talking about steam root and stem and people going what are they saying if they're not aware so thanks
2: right right right, right.
1: <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about pantucket and uh your involvement in changing the structure of public education and the work that you do you know specifically there
2: sure yeah so We had an extremely progressive superintendent who uh, kind of took the lead and decided that he was going to uh, get rid of all of our curriculum. So he pretty much gave autonomy to all of our teachers um, to create curriculum that they felt was necessary and that they felt was important, which before the Common Core, that's what a teacher's job was to create lesson plans um, and deliver those to students. And by doing that in a, a teacher creating a lesson plan that they really care about, their passion for that subject matter just comes across. And what's happened over time is with uh, this box curriculum, it the passion isn't there. Um, teachers are given a script and, tell, and told what to say when and what students should, what they should expect students to ask and what their response should be. And, you know, by doing that, it, it, it creates a very inauthentic learning experience for the students. Um, so what our superintendent did was he, he gave our LOR teachers autonomy over their, uh, their curriculum. And um, as the STEAM coordinator, my job was to help form um, their lesson plans so that they are creating those passionate, uh, high-powered units While still adhering to the Mass State Standards and the Common Core, which seems a little tricky and seems a little difficult. Um, But before they implemented my job as the STEAM coordinator, our teachers were looking at STEAM and saying, Well, I'm obviously not teaching a unit correctly if I'm not teaching all of the principles science technology engineering arts and math if my lesson doesn't have all of those components in it then it cannot be considered a steam unit um so when I came into the position and I first heard that I you know felt like they were kind of overthinking the process a little bit uh too much um and I I I think you know if it doesn't make sense to the teachers then it's not going to make sense to the students Mm -hmm. um And STEAM is really about teaching core concepts with hands-on learning, project-based learning.
0: Thanks for sharing that. I was going to mention for um, our non-U.S. listeners, I'm sure some are familiar for top-down curriculums. Common Core in the U.S. uh, stipulates certain states have to follow a set curriculum. It is a standardized curriculum that's taught across um, districts and regions in the U.S. So I think giving them creativity and letting them know it doesn't have to be as rigid to be STEAM is great. So how did you break them out of Um, that kind of mode of teaching of teacher as leader versus the guide on the side to facilitate problem-based learning.
2: So um, what, so as all public schools in um, the United States, we have the standardized tests and what happened after. So our, we had our superintendent who was, you know, very steam driven for about six years and um, our standardized test course came out and they were one of the lowest in the state but our um our high school was one of the highest in the state so we were it was proven that we were teaching our students how to think um and we got a lot of pushback from our community because of that uh which was kind of um disappointing um but uh I think what what we're doing now is we have we have implemented two curriculum in both the in both math and writing and reading. Um, they're very intense, rigorous box curriculum, as you would say. Um, and then all content is um, is authentic, student driven, project based learning. So. Um, we looked into project lead the way, which is a, a, a box curriculum. Um, and we've decided to kind of let students, uh, decide their own. So their own, um, learning.
0: I think that's good. Like not everything works when you try things. And I think we don't often talk about, um, when things don't go as planned or when people see something as a failure, even though it's a transition or a change. So how did um, you address out the community and the parents and um, maybe some of the students that were oh, frustrated?
2: So what we did was, I, I like I said before, I, I'm so passionate about STEAM that I really needed to get that buy-in back from our community. So what we had done was we created two, um, we created two huge events within the school year. Um, to kind of highlight why we're doing what we're doing and trying to showcase why it's important for both the students and the parents. Um, So what we did is we created a design and engineering expo, which we held in January. Um, And that was a really good time to hold something very exciting like that because, um, you know, the weather around New England is kind of depressing and we're right in the middle of all of our curriculum. So it gets people kind of re-energized and, you know, uh, really excited about what we were doing. So, I had started um, in within the school within the school day. I started passion projects, which students had the option instead of going to lunch and recess. They were able to come down to the makerspace and work on something that they were passionate about. So they obviously had to present their idea to me first, tell me the supplies that they needed. And they just came down for that 45 minutes and worked on whatever they were passionate about, and ate their lunch, and talked with other students, and got ideas, and you know were able to use the technology to look up questions, and you know try to figure out if somebody had created what they were passionate about before, and if they could do it differently. So during the Design and Engineering Expo was the first time that we kind of opened it to the public that we were um, we were giving students this opportunity to create. Uh, their own passion projects. Um, We had also asked the surrounding engineers to participate. We had um, some high school students from another school. Um, They were throwing on the pottery wheel and they were showing, uh, you know, how pottery is made from from clay, you know, how bowls are, are made. And to watch the kindergarten and first grade students stare at the pottery wheel it was just so mesmerizing for them and they were just so excited. Um, we had uh, a robotics team from our, our one of our other local schools um, come in and they were showcasing their huge robotics program that they have. Um, so it was, it was a huge community event. It wasn't just for our, our school. Uh, so we we put it in the newspapers and we made sure that, you know, everyone from around was able to come. And we had uh, probably over 250 uh, students uh, participants come to the to the expo. Um, it was just a very incredible experience. And we got tons of positive feedback. Um, we had workshops um, for students. In the Makerspace, there was workshops on um, circuitry from, we had a couple of MIT students who volunteered to come up and uh, host that workshop. Uh, we had um, another workshop um, in a classroom from Beyond Benign. Um, there are or- an organic chemistry uh, college student um, run program. And they were making edible juice pods for the mm-hmm. students. They were talking about reduce, reuse, recycle. Um, And then we had the Museum of Science come in and they were also holding another workshop um, on uh, wind energy. Um, So students were able to create their own wind powered uh, energy source. So it was just a very fun, interactive, uh, all inclusive event event where everyone kind of, you know, you could see light bulbs start to go off as to why why we're trying to push for steam and why we're trying to push for making. Um, it was just, it was a very positive experience for our community after that huge blow of our test scores, you know. So I'm
1: wondering, uh, what, you know, how many years this program has been going, in what ways you've either been able to evaluate impact or looking you know, to evaluate kind of the long-term impact of students going through a program like this?
2: Um, sure. I actually spoke at the uh, ISTE conference. I'm not sure if you're familiar. It was in mm-hmm. Chicago at the International Society for Technology and Education. So I spoke at that conference with a group that I participate with. It's the Learning Supported by Making group at MIT um, at the Edgerton Center. And one of the questions that we had come up multiple times was how to assess making and how to assess STEAM. And, you know, the big consensus was you're, you have to expect that you're going to see some amazing forms of thinking that you're just not going to be able to capture on a rubric. Um, and uh, I think the biggest form of assessment is the student reflection Um so what I did with a lot of the making units that, and the STEAM units that we have was having the students write out the problems that they had, um, what, if it failed, if it was a failure or success, and why so, and what they think that they would do better and why they would do it, you know. So I think I, think I would use um, this, a student-written, student-reflection and a presentation as an assessment.
0: I think that's a good holistic way to approach because I, too, have um, partnered with makerspaces and libraries and a couple of universities and community workshops, and you're right. The outcome is not going to be the end product that you'd assess. You'd assess the process, like the failing, the troubleshooting, the tinkering, the figuring it out, um, being resourceful. So I think there's so much more critical thinking that goes on that I don't think you can always measure. I, we're always worried about what counts. So... This won't be on a standardized test, but this is actually some good life skills for just um, persisting through and being resilient with projects and ideas and design.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And persistence is huge. And, you know, I, I really try to encourage failure and to celebrate failure because there's so many times that any student or any person is going to fail at something. And to be able to rebound and bounce back from that and to try it again that's just a huge skill that we all need. I agree. And do you have any sense of,
1: um, you know, like if, if, of students in underrepresented groups and how, you know, participating in the makerspace might help them persist or feel a greater sense of belonging.
2: Absolutely. I actually, um, I have a really nice story, uh, that I'd like to tell. So I had a, a couple students who, um, when I first got there and they were kind of my inspiration as to starting the passion projects. Um, they were a- included with the regular group of classes when they really should have been in probably a language base or a, you know, a special education program and they were not yet. Um, so they felt complete failure, um, being in the, you know, general education setting. They just weren't getting it. Um, there, you know, he he was actually banging his head on the wall, saying that he was stupid and that he just didn't understand. And so, I invited him down to have lunch with me um, and hang out in the makerspace with me while I was working on something. And he came down, and he said he came down the first day and kind of like looked around the makerspace and saw the tools and materials and all of the really cool stuff that we have going on. And then then the next day he brought down his, his buddy who was also kind of in the same situation and they were talking and trying to figure out what they wanted to do. And then the next day he came down and he said, Hey, Miss Welch, do you have a, um, do you have a piece of newspaper and a cardboard box and a a needle? And I was like, yeah, sure. And he's like, Oh, cool. Great. So I gave it to him. And then I went back on my computer and continued my work. And I turned back around he goes, Hey, look what, look what I just made. And he made a, a working record player. He had brought he had brought in a record from that he had bought from the thrift store, uh, and he was playing music on the record. It was just incredible. Um, so there's all sorts of intelligences that, you know, I think are very overlooked. But when you get students into a makerspace, into a making setting, and they're able to direct their own you know, their own education and figure things out, there's so much more emotional and uh, you know, value and self-confidence that comes out when they create something like that. And just seeing his face and seeing how amazing and having, having him see my expression and my reaction to the fact that he created a working record player was just incredible you know I was out in the hallway yelling at all the teachers everyone come on look what he just made like this is crazy and um that just he was just a completely different person after that
0: it's such a confidence builder when you can figure things out and make something your own see something like tangible afterwards
2: absolutely yes yes and you know and he he was probably just a miracle case but after, after being in the makerspace and working on passion projects for the rest of the year, just his entire social and emotional skills and development and even his work within the classroom and his grades, just everything just improved. And it's all from that one, that one moment in, in the makerspace, you know, and then that just the continuous ability to come down and tinker and explore and be an expert at something, you know, and that was just a huge moment for him.
0: You've mentioned the makerspace a few times, and I know making and makerspaces all look different. Could you kind of uh, verbally walk us through what your setup is in your makerspace, and or kind of what kind of resources do you offer students, and does this change from, I guess, year to year, or maybe projects you want them to consider?
2: Sure. So um, our makerspace is located down the hallway from our main office. It's kind of right in front of the building. It used to be an old cafeteria, which had worked to our advantage because it's fairly large and it does have a huge storage area, um, which talking to other makers around the area who have makerspaces, that's one thing that they lack. Um, Usually makerspaces are developed in a library. Or um, a, another, a different classroom setting. And, you know, the lack of storage is huge because a lot of the, the making projects tend to be, you know, uh, a long, take a long time to work on and they tend to be a little big. Um, so we do have a nice storage area. Um, we have um, copper foil tape, we have um, sewing machines, we have tons of donated fabric um, from community members, we have um, LED lights, we have flour, we have um, vinegar, we have Alka-Seltzer tabs, we have, <laughs> we just have anything and everything that you can think of that, um, we, we have wood, we have a scroll saw, we have hot glue guns, we have um, plenty of electrical outlets, so I, it's it's just a huge area for students to become creative and to be innovators, um, and I really tried to stock the makerspace with anything that a student could be inspired by. Um, I had gotten a grant for a couple tablets as well. So there's about 12 tablets in the makerspace where students can use for research or recording their project and their process. Um, and then across from our makerspace we have a Steam Lab, which is a small office area um, which I had converted into the Steam Lab, which holds our Mac computers, our green screen and our robotics. Um, so we have, uh, we're very, very fortunate to have such a, an amazing space for our students to be able to work and become inspired. Um, and uh, that's just, we're just very fortunate for that. Um, so what our school did was we created a Pentucket curriculum underneath our uh, superintendent who was very uh, STEAM-driven. Um, and the Pentucket curriculum essentially was maker projects all derived from the core standards um, of all content. So, what happened was um, the Kentucky curriculum was introduced to our teachers last year, my first year as being the STEAM coordinator, and um, everyone was kind of like, "Whoa!" because it was like thirty-five making unit, uh, thirty-five making units um, within all of their content plus on top of everything else that they needed to teach. And making projects and STEAM projects are very lengthy because there's a process, um, there's the planning, uh, then there's the creating, and then there's the testing, and then the revising. So it could take up to a week for uh, just one project. And, you know, our our greatest asset as teachers is time, And you know we don't. If we don't have it, then we can't use it. So, um, trying to find the time to do all of those making projects was really difficult. So, what we decided to do was have our teachers just choose one or two for the first year. Um, And you know, I I would like to say that all the teachers were coming down whenever they could. Um, But you know, in all honesty, people are only comfortable with what they know. Um, And a lot of the newer teachers, I think, were more, uh, more able to come, were more willing to come down to the makerspace to try new things and to try different styles of learning, um, for these students in the makerspace. Um, but it, I, I, think that after, after them, see, after, you know, a third grade teacher came down to, to try, you know, we made magnet levitation trains in third grade because they start to learn about forces and, um, and magnets, so we made magnet levitation trains, and um, we I had the students just look up a magnet levitation train. They had to devise a plan. They created the the trains, and some of them didn't work. And one student was very one student was very successful. And after that experience, and having them you know write a response to reflect on you know what they could do better. Then when they brought all of their information back to the rest of the third grade team, everyone was very inspired to come down because the students who, who are in class and who are those book start smart students who are the all-star students in class, when you get them into the makerspace, they, they tend to have an opposite reaction. So sometimes they still are that star student, but it's typical that the student who is, you know, less likely to, be raising his hand constantly is the one who's the all-star at the makerspace and the one that's the most successful.
0: Yeah, and there could be that fear of I don't want to uh, make a mistake or uh, mess up my project, or if it it doesn't work, that means I'm I'm bad. We get so dichotomous with that instead of just saying, like, why aren't we like exploring this idea and doing some discovery and tinkering and saying it's okay if you mess up or it doesn't work? That might happen.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And what we were able to do was, you know, uh, one of the, the teacher during that magnet levitation um, project, the teacher was saying, you know, they're stealing, they're stealing ideas, they're not holding true to their plan. And I was like, well, that's okay, it's all right. <laughs> you know, if they they look over and they see that this worked, and oh yeah, I can use that, I can. I can change my design so that it'll work instead of, you know, going forward with the plan that wasn't going to work and wasting all that time. If they could inter, you know, intervene halfway through, that's okay. You know, and it, it's not cheating at that point because they could look it up, <laughs> you know,
1: <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting shift in general between, uh, to that mindset of collaboration and sharing yeah. ideas. And yeah, we see that all across academia. Um, well, one of the things I'm wondering, like when we first started the conversation, you mentioned that your superintendent was very on board to, you know, to initiate this. And I'm wondering, like, if I'm a listener and I'm like, this sounds really cool and I would love to do this at my school, but, you know, I, I don't have upper leadership buy-in. We don't have any money. And the pushback I'll get from the teachers is I don't have any time because I have to focus on common core. Do you have any suggestions for our listeners of, you know, like who are the right people to have in the room to kind of get that conversation started? How do you get buy-in possibly? My
2: my advice for that is uh, start with an after-school program. Um, Start with an after-school program and watch it rise from there. Um, We have a destination imagination program, which is hugely successful, Um, and our – Um, fifth graders went to Globals this year and won Globals. Um, So, and that, the Destination Imagination um, group is all STEAM-driven. So it's all hands-on learning. We also have a robotics program for our after-school students as well. um, And I would definitely start with that. Um, And then once they, you know, once the administration see how much of an impact that makes on student learning I think that you know you'll have no you'll have no problem Um, as far as funding goes a lot of the STEAM projects and a lot of the the, uh, materials that you need in the makerspace could definitely be donated I would start with recycled materials which is what we did for years Um, and then you know after we had a couple community events where people were able to use where parents were able to come in and see the makerspace and see what was going on and um you know other community members we were able to come in and teach lessons to kids in our makerspace and use the materials slowly people just started to donate things um huge things small you know we, so we had like three or four uh sewing machines and tons of fabric donated to us um so i think that i my suggestion would be to start small um you know if if you are getting major pushback and you don't have any support I would start with just an hour every Friday and have students create their own passion projects. Just every hour, call it a genius hour, call it a, you know, passion project time and let students create and learn things on their own, give them the tools that they need. Um, that would be my suggestion.
0: That's a great idea. And honestly, there may be resources in your community. So like if you are near, whether it's um, a community college, a university, a library, a museum, there might be resources where they can expose students to different types of making and experimenting things. Whether it's 3D printing, robotics, or um, other STEAM works, I know that they're always looking for opportunities to expose learners in the K-12 to this kind of activity and events. So. Um, don't be surprised that there aren't people in your community interested in this. Is there a maker community near you or like an actual maker space in the community?
2: I haven't been to it, but I do know that there is a couple maker spaces uh, around us. Um, mm-hmm. And I think our goal this year is to get connected with them and see if they can come in and do some um, workshops with parents and, and students alike. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And um, so I, there was a there's a podcast that I really like to listen to, and I get really inspired by this podcast. And I just like to share because I think that it might be helpful for anybody who's really trying to get steam and making and technology integration into their school. Um, it's called the TeacherCast Edu- Educational Network.
1: We'll be sure to share that in the show notes. Nice. We We're
2: a fan of
0: podcasts, so that's great. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so we've been so uh, enthralled in this discussion that we haven't even had a chance to talk about your favorite wine or other beverage. Would you care? To-
2: <laughs> yes, I am a sucker for red wine. I love any, any red wine, but I think my favorite would be cab staff. dear year-round wine.
0: That's awesome. Um, what's coming down the pipeline for you? Are there any projects besides do you think about collaborating with makers in the community or are there other things now that you've uh, – and you've mentioned this a little bit because you've connected with ISTI. Are there other things that um, you could share with others, like resources, that you might want to encourage them to tap into, um, whether it's locally in your state or nationally?
2: Um, so I – um, like I, I had mentioned before that I'm, I have partnered with Learning Supported by Making. Um, it's an MIT branch, and they have, a, they have a website that you can go to if you're interested in starting your own makerspace. Um, they have individual tools training, um, and they have uh, pictures and um, articles about what makerspaces might look like. Um, they also hold workshops for teachers as well. Um, to learn, you know, about laser cutting, LEDs, um, circuitry, and um, 3D printing as well. Um, so we had sent a couple of our teachers there. And I think by by doing that gave, gave a lot of credibility to what we were doing for our teachers. Um, you know, a lot of them are, are very scared of big technology equipment that they've never used before, like a 3D printer, you know, and then once you start to use a 3D printer and you work with it your first time you're like oh this is a piece of cake <laughs> you know yep. kindergartners can do this <laughs> and um are there any resources other than that or do you have a favorite book that you have been reading launch by jonathan spencer and that is um all about making and steam uh, project-based learning so i i would give that as a resource to anybody who's really interested in 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 that launch cool
1: is there anything that we have not chatted about today that you'd like to mention or share with us?
2: Yeah, so I actually wanted to uh, say, you know, why making? So why 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 making? And uh, the reason is because, you know, 20 years ago, people were fixing their cars and, you know, they were working on their own houses and all of that making was being done at home. Um, and now none of that is being done anymore. So that's why we really, are really trying to get making back into schools again you know um even 20 years ago each school had its own welding shop or you know its own auto mechanic shop and you know a lot of that has been resourced to technical schools now or vocational schools so i think it's huge to get it back into a kindergarten through sixth grade level because at that level kids are so interested in the world around them that they want to know why things work they want to understand why a car is driving they want to understand you know why you know what happens when the toilet flushes? Where does that go? You know, and it's just little things that are very inquisitive for these kids. And it's very important for them to start, you know, inquiring about that at a young age so that they can become lifelong learners and that they, they can, you know, ask questions. And you know, we live in an age now where these students are able to answer anything that they want to with their phone. And being able to get them to understand that and realize that at a young age will change their entire makeup of their educational career.
0: Yeah, the idea of like sparking curiosity and also having hands-on like applied learning with with the knowledge. I like that.
2: Absolutely. And you know, if you know, if they can just ask their phone a question now and and get the answer and to you know, that's huge. We didn't have that when we were growing up. <laughs>
1: It's an interesting uh, shift, though, where, you know, you're talking about how, you know, some of the things that we used to teach in school, maybe we don't need to because you can access them with technology. But because of the technology, we're not doing some of the things at home we used to. So it's a little bit of a flip of. Yeah. Right.
2: Absolutely.
0: Okay. So when you're not making with your students, what do you make on your own, on your own time for your free and fun time?
2: Yeah, so um, I am an artist. So I'm a, I paint a lot. Um, I have three kids: one year old, um, a four year old, and an eight year old. And before my one year old came along, I had uh, I think a lot more time to devote to my own painting and drawing um, than I do now. <laughs> but I kind of, I've kind of been lacking on that this year. Um, he's not the best sleeper.
0: <laughs> you get back to it though. Yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And what do you like to paint? Do you have any paintings um, that you could share, like a portfolio or anywhere? Or, yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I can share a portfolio. I, I, I had an Etsy account that hasn't been updated, but, you know, it, ha- it was pretty active for a while. Sure. Cool. All right. That's awesome. Well, thanks so
1: much for joining us today. It was really – it was great to hear about the work you're doing and the impact that you're having and we look forward to uh, you know hearing about what happens over the next couple of
2: years. Awesome. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Brooke. We appreciate you taking time and
0: trying at the InVino Fab podcast and we'll share all the good stuff. You've shared books and podcasts and resources for our listeners. So we appreciate it. Thanks.
1: This podcast wants to continue the conversation with women about stories and why. So we would love to hear you tell us what voices, ideas, questions, and random wine facts you hope we'll chat about in a future episode. Find us on Twitter at
0: or on the hashtag InvinoFab, and we'll always welcome love or messages by email at invinofabulum at gmail.com.
1: To stay tuned to for the next episode, please subscribe to the in vino fab Podcast via Apple podcast, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And remember In wine, there is a story in Vino Fabulum.